Well, we're continuing along in our 40 days of prayer, and I would echo what uh, Christina said about our 40 days of prayer. It's been an excellent time already. If you've not been following along with the daily devotionals, man, they, they are doing an amazing job with this, and uh, really just an awesome, focused time of prayer. And so I strongly encourage you, uh, if you did not get the link um, last Sunday, we, we sent it out right after service, if you need that link, let us know somehow, text us or email us or call the office or something, and we'll get you that link so that you can sign up um, to be getting the, the devotionals. Um, they're really, really good, and uh, I hope they help to focus your mind on this theme this year, which is reawakening to Christ and, and uh, the power that God has in that uh, for us this year. As we start this morning, I do have a question that I would hope you'd be able to answer. What is the gospel? Do you know what the word gospel means? Good news. Okay, we talked about that last series, so I hope you remember that. Good news. Okay, but what is the gospel? If, you, if someone that didn't know Jesus said, hey, I've heard about this, you know, the gospel, what is it? What would you touch on? What would you talk about? I imagine no two people in this room will say the exact same words, but I think we could probably agree there are some big items in the gospel that you have to talk, you have to talk about. Uh, it'd be really, uh, I, I don't want to say really hard, it'd be impossible to present the gospel, to talk about the gospel without mentioning uh, Christ's life, his death, and his resurrection. Do we agree on that? We, can, can we agree that those three are something you have to touch on. If you don't mention those, you're not really talking about the gospel because the good news is that Jesus came, he lived a perfect life, he died, and he was raised to life again. Uh, that's the main, some of the main points of the gospel. Now, uh, I imagine each of us would have some other points that we think are very important that have to be a part of it, uh, but these are pretty important parts of the gospel. I've always found it interesting when people claim that the gospel is just another work of fiction uh, in these authors' minds. And uh, I, I enjoy having those conversations because I think there are an, a, an abundance of proofs against that. But uh, one of them were, would be for me, if you were going to write a story about God or a God coming to the earth, it would probably look a lot more like every other story of God's coming to this earth. Uh, they all have a pretty similar theme, a pretty similar structure, pretty uh, similar items in those stories about uh, other uh, false stories about God's coming to this earth. Uh, instead, the gospel tells us that God comes to the earth in humble standards, even for humans. Anybody else here born in a barn? All right, so the standards with which Christ came to this earth are pretty humble even for us. Uh, I did not come from a wealthy family or a well-to-do group of people, and I was still born in a hospital surrounded by more modern equipment than anybody in Jesus' time could even comprehend. So Jesus comes even uh, humbly for humans. He lived a human life with no great feats or accomplishments of his own. You recognize that. Christ lived an entire life. Uh, he made it very clear it was by the power of God 
with which he was living his life. He was living as an example of what God can do, not of what man can do. So he doesn't, doesn't even have any of these great feats or accomplishments. You know, if you look at the, some of the Greek stories of Greek gods and things, it's always about their accomplishments, their, their feats, what they've overcome, uh, the, the evil that they were able to vanquish and, and conquer, and, and it was all about their great strength and their great ability. Jesus spends the majority of his time with the undesirables of communities. Again, you show me a story about where uh, God came down to earth and spent his time with people nobody else wanted to spend time with. That's not how those stories go. They, they, they surround themselves with the best and the smartest and the strongest, and that's those, what those stories are all about. Jesus, uh, it, we're told, dies a humiliating death at the hands of the oppressors of his people, seemingly powerless and defeated. Again, not exactly the story of a great Greek epic or one of those other stories where the hero dies at the hands of the people he's supposed to defeat. And if you lived in Jesus' time, if uh, you talked to the Jewish people, that's exactly what their understanding of the Messiah was, that he was going to come and he was going to conquer Rome and everybody, all the Jewish people would be free again and they would be the most important people and it was, for them it was all about power. They'd be the most powerful nation again one day. That's what they thought the Messiah was about. And yet the gospel doesn't play out that way. So Jesus dies at the hands of his oppressors. Then he rose again after three days. And instead of taking vengeance on the oppressors who took his life again, if I'm writing this story, that's what's happening. Jesus is coming back from the dead and he's wiping them all out because they killed him. But that's not what happens. Instead of taking vengeance on the oppressors who took his life, he spends the next 40 days building up a group of nobodies to change the world. Spends all his time with uneducated, unimportant people who have little to no influence in the world, trains them and says, all right, you guys got this. And he goes back to heaven. Not the way anybody would write a story about God coming down to earth. And I know this because nobody did write this story. Nobody wrote a story even s somewhat similar. And I think it's interesting because I've you know, had these conversations with intellectual people and like, oh, well, the Christians just stole portions of their story from Greek epics and other Greek stories and blah, blah, blah. Like, I'm sorry, no, none of this correlates to that. Jesus didn't come. He didn't have superhuman strength. And even the things that we attribute to him as something he accomplished, he made it very clear. This is God's work. God was doing this work. And he told us, you, meaning us as Christians who live after Jesus went back to heaven, he says, you'll do even greater things than I did. The power in this story, the power in the gospel, isn't in its uniqueness. It's in the fact that it's all true. That's where the power of the gospel is. That every single word of it is true. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection are incredible and life-changing for us. And if we can grasp the truth of these events, it will change our life as well. If we can simply focus our minds to truly understand what it means that Jesus came, he lived his life the way he lived it, that he died and what that meant, and that he rose again. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. 
the first aspect to look at when sharing the gospel. I hope, uh, I hope you've each had an experience where you've gotten to share the gospel with somebody. If not, man, you got to do something this week, all right? Uh, go talk to somebody and start sharing the gospel with somebody. You need some practice, just start talking and ask God to help you out with that. But th- there, there should never be a question of if you've shared the gospel, but when you've shared the gospel, I think the first aspect to look at is Christ's life. Uh, the fact that eternal God came to earth to live as a human, to live as his creation. But it's not in the nature that anyone expected. Again, if you were going to write the story, you would certainly not have written that the God of all creation, the the God who has no beginning and no end, who can hold the galaxies in his hand, decided that he'd be born in a barn, surrounded by dirty, stinky animals, because the people he chose. You know, I I, I love the story of, if you don't know, my favorite superhero is Superman. And when you understand the story of Superman, you know, they, they actually did research and they chose Jonathan and Martha Kent because of their virtue and because of how awesome they were. And they might not be rich people, but they were these amazing people. And, and it seems that Mary and Joseph, while they might have been amazing people, they, they had very little to offer, certainly from the world's perspective. And yet that's who God chooses to bring uh, Jesus into the world, and they don't even have money to to pay extra to get into the inn, and they end up in a barn. Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 to 8 gives us some insight as to why. This is speaking of Jesus. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Why? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Why? It's one thing to talk about how awesome it is that Jesus came in such a humble form, and we talk about that every Christmas. It comes up, and and we discuss that. But if somebody asked you why, why did he come? in such a humble way. Why couldn't he have just been normal and just been born, even in a a human normal standard? Why did he have to do that? Why didn't Jesus come in all of his glory and his power? Wouldn't more people have believed if, if God came down on this, you know, golden shining cloud and said, here is my son? Wouldn't more people have believed? Well, there's a few reasons that I believe Jesus lived as he did, and he lived the humble human life that we're going to look at today. I believe Jesus lived as a human first to relate to us relationally. Any of you can relate to living as royalty? Me either. So there's a good reason Jesus came as a, in a humble form, and one of those, like I said, is to relate to us relationally. Hebrews chapter 12 Verses 11 to 13 says, So now Jesus and the ones he makes holy have the same Father. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them his brothers and sisters. For he said to God, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. I will praise you among your assembled people. He also said, I will put my trust in him, that is, I and the children God has given me. Have you ever thought about this? Jesus calls you brother and sister. 
That's pretty powerful. Now, I don't know. How, I, I grew up with four brothers. And, you know, only times my brother's names came up was when I found myself in a particularly sticky situation. And I had to remind them that I had a brother that was big and bigger than they are. And that's my brother. But your brother is Jesus, the God of all creation, the God who created everything that we know. You get to call him brother. That is amazing. I think some of us will live our whole life and go, "Eh." like, what? Are you kidding me? You've been adopted into a family. Like, if if you were going to be adopted into some royal family today, you'd probably make a big deal about it. And yet some of us have made very little deal about the fact that God himself has decided to adopt us and call us brother and sister. That's huge. We have the same heavenly father. It's why many Christians have got into the habit of calling each other brother and sister. And in some denominations, in some churches, you know, that if I were to see you, I'd say, oh, hi, brother Doug. Oh, hi. Sister Melissa, you know, that's just how you do it. You, you, you put brother or sister before everybody's name. Um, that's what they do. Why? Because we have the same Heavenly Father. We've all been adopted into the same family. It's why we're also called co-heirs with Christ, Romans eight seventeen. And since we are His children, we are His heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. But if we are to share His glory, we must also share His suffering. This is another huge, huge one. I imagine most of you, your life would change significantly if you became co-heirs with somebody who was a billionaire. My guess is your life would change at least somewhat. You have become co-heirs with something that's far more powerful than money. You've become co-heirs with the author of eternity. That's who you've become co-heirs with. You don't inherit money, you inherit eternal life. This is amazing, and yet we just sit around and we think about it and go, oh, that's, that's nice. Oh, that, that's cool. I'm going to get back to my kingdom now and what I'm interested in. And it affects us so little. When, when, this, when this hits your brain, when this really begins to settle in, it should floor you. There should be moments in your life where you just, you don't even have words to say thank you to God because it moves you so much to know what he's done for you. Which brings us to our next point. Jesus lived as a human to relate to us in our suffering and weakness. It says here in this verse we have to share in his suffering. Well, one of the ways he came, one of the reasons he came the way he did was to relate to us in our suffering weakness. First Peter 2.21 says, For God called you to do good, even if it means suffering, just as Christ suffered for you. He is your example, and you must follow in his steps. Remember, this isn't just about the humble Jesus. When we think about Jesus, like we talked about last week, so often we think about just the earthly portion of Jesus' existence, which isn't even a a blip on the radar because He is literally eternal. He doesn't have a beginning. He doesn't have an end. Jesus didn't come into existence when He cried His first cry or when He began uh, to be, be a baby in Mary's uh, stomach, that's not when Jesus began to exist. He has always existed. 
And he will always exist. He is power. He is love. He is, the Bible tells us, he's the word. And, and through every, everything was created through him. That's Jesus. He's the God of creation who holds the galaxies in his hand. And, and he suffered all throughout his life and died an extremely painful death for us. Can you imagine, and, and I ask this rhetorically because the answer is no, you can't imagine, but could you possibly try to imagine what it would be like to be the ex eternally existent God, creator of time and space itself, and wake up hungry or with a headache? No, we can't. We can imagine what it is like to be a human and be frustrated by that, but imagine to be God and choosing to wake up hungry or with a headache or with a cramp in your leg. I don't know if Jesus ever got a cramp, but he was pretty human, so chances are pretty good he woke up with some pain here and there. Or to be God, and then to be mocked by a Pharisee who thinks he knows better than you do. Just the fact of existing in a human body was a form of suffering for God. The fact that he restricted himself to a human form for a period of time, and it tells us that he put off some of his godliness, obviously, or else anywhere Jesus went, people would notice that he was God because he'd be shining and he'd be perfect and he'd have this powerful presence that nobody could deny. And so he puts off a lot of his godness to become man. But he did it to relate to us in our suffering and in our weakness. Jesus also lived as a human as an example. If you have been following along in our daily devotions, back on day 10 in our devotions, it says, the Spirit of the Lord activated, appointed, and anointed Jesus for the ministry of the gospel. It is a ministry to proclaim and demonstrate the power of the good news to the physically and spiritually poor, to the captive, brokenhearted, blind, and oppressed. Jesus, the great physician of the body and soul, faithfully teaches about the kingdom and with great authority sets people free. Now, there's a portion in there I want to focus on. It says, it is a ministry to proclaim and demonstrate the power of the good news. That's the same ministry we have today. To proclaim and demonstrate the power of the good news, the power of the gospel. What if instead of just reading the gospels from time to time, we committed to proclaim and demonstrate the gospel to those around us? And now this might seem pretty easy to you. Yeah, yeah I'll tell people about Jesus and then I'll act like him. Who, any of you that have lived long enough, you know, that's a lot harder to do than it is to say, and to say, I, I, I proclaim and demonstrate, sure. Man, this requires a death to ourselves to say, you know what? I am far less important than Jesus is, and I'm going to seek to empty myself of myself and of my stuff that gets in the way of Jesus, and I'm going to seek to proclaim and demonstrate Him. I'm going to seek to be Jesus to people instead of be myself and and be my selfishness to people jesus lived to proclaim and demonstrate the power of the gospel and we're called to do the same thing what does that look like for you this past week how have you lived in a way that proclaimed and demonstrated the gospel 
Now, again, I never want to ask these questions or say these things to, to make you feel shameful, but hopefully to encourage you to act. That this week, if maybe last week wasn't so good on that front, then today, we can't do anything about last week, it's already passed. But this week, what would it look like to proclaim and demonstrate, as Jesus did, the power of the gospel? What would that look like in your life? Jesus' life was powerful, and it helped us see how God can relate to us in our humanity. Now, I also want to point out that God, before He ever stepped foot on this earth, was able to fully relate to us in every way. But we got to see Him relate to us. God, in His infinite wisdom and capabilities, could easily have fathomed what it would be like to wake up with a headache or to wake up hungry. And yet he came to this earth to show us that he relates to us in every way like that. But it was Jesus' death which was necessary for salvation. Now, Jesus could have lived a perfect life. He could still be alive today living a perfect life. But without his death, there would be no ability for us to enter heaven. His death was necessary. Uh, as a matter of fact, that's the whole reason he came. From the moment he was born... His life was, he became human for one purpose, and that was to die as a human on the cross because somebody needed to pay for our sins, and we were incapable of doing it. The first time we sinned, we got wrote, written off the list. We were no longer eligible to die for the sins of anybody, even just ourselves because once we're blemished, we're blemished. That's it. Anybody here not sin? Okay, so you were incapable of earning salvation because it requires complete perfection and then to die for that. So Jesus sacrificed himself in order to secure our heavenly futures. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11 to 15. It says, so Christ has now become the high priest over all the good things that have come. He has entered that greater, more perfect tabernacle in heaven, which was not made by human hands and is not part of this created world. With his own blood, not the blood of goats and calves, he entered the most holy place once for all time and secured our redemption forever. Under the old system, the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer could cleanse people's bodies from ceremonial impurity. Just think how much more the blood of Christ will purify our consciences from sinful deeds so that we can worship the living God. For by the power of the eternal spirit, Christ offered himself to God as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. That is why he is the one who mediates a new covenant between God and people so that all who are called can receive the eternal the eternal inheritance God has promised them. For Christ died to set them free from the penalty of sins they had committed under that first covenant. Man, there's a lot in that scripture passage. More than we can take time to, to dive into this morning. But the, the truth of that, the reality that Christ's perfect life, He became the sacrifice that all of our sins, all of our stuff rests on. Some of you, uh, hopefully, have had an experience where that weight weighed on you. How many of you like when other people do things for you uh, because you're powerless to do them? No, me either. I don't really care for that much myself. 
And so we can tend to live the Christian life thinking, well, okay, I can accept that Jesus did what I couldn't do, but I'm going to do my best to earn it anyhow. And that's just a wrong mentality. There is nothing you could do to pay that back. Imagine for a moment somebody, now this could obviously never happen, somebody decided they would, they would purchase you a whole continent, all right? It was all yours, and you decided, well, I'm going to use my gifts of I'm really good at dusting. Like, that's my gift, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dust to earn that, that all of the, the trillions of dollars that they spent on that. that. That's literally what us doing good works is like to God. It doesn't matter how much dusting you do. You're, never, you're not going to put a dent in what that cost was. And we can live our whole life doing all kinds of good stuff, and it doesn't put a dent in our what we owed because good works don't cancel out bad works. That's not how it works. It's a completely different system. Probably a more accurate analogy would be you, you, you were going to pay that back by walking a bunch. Like That's not even the same currency. You can't pay for something by walking. That's what us doing good works to earn salvation is like. And yet, churches, thankfully not ours, but churches have created systems where they almost make it, make it like, yeah, that's what you're doing. You can earn salvation. You, you, should, you should do these things, and you should live this way, and you should whatever in order to say thanks to God. And, and that's just also wrong thinking. The reality is, once you've gotten a hold of that, once the weight of what Christ has done for you sets in, once you begin to understand the, the importance of what Christ did when He sacrificed Himself on the cross, nobody has to tell you what to do. You'll want to do it, and you'll seek more, and you become hungry and thirsty after the things of God. You want to live for Him. And the Holy Spirit, He begins to illuminate the Scriptures to your mind, and you begin to understand things that you never could have understood before. And you begin to, to dive into God's Word, and you, and you listen to teachings, and, and things just make sense to you, and you want it more and more and more. Because you understand every day, you, you seem to grow in your understanding of what Christ has done. And sometimes it should mess you up. And there should be moments where you're just like snotting on the floor and just saying, God, I am so unworthy for this. What you did for me, it's beyond my ability to say thank you for. I can't. And if you've never had a moment like that, you might need to ask, do you really understand what Christ has done? Because it is beyond what we could ever have hoped for. We certainly didn't deserve it. And yet He has rescued us. He became the perfect sacrifice. So all the things that we try to do to earn God's approval or to earn salvation, it's all irrelevant. Jesus was the perfect sacrifice. It was His blood which purified us and enables us to enter heaven. We know that nothing sinful, nothing blemished can enter heaven. And so we were up the creek without a paddle, and Christ rescued us. We could never have earned salvation through any means that you can possibly think of or fathom. It won't do it. We didn't have the currency available, because the only currency God was looking for was a perfect sacrifice. And Jesus became that for us. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 to 15. 
says, because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood, for only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Only in this way could he set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. We have been set free because of Jesus' death. Amen. Like, that is awesome. How many of you, you don't need to raise your hands, but how many of you remember what it was like to live under the power of sin? To live bound by the power of sin? To live hopeless and frustrated? And do you remember what it felt like when you received Christ, when you decided to make Him the King of your life? And the weight that came off your chest, I remember it. It was life-changing. We were set free. Don't forget that feeling. Remember what that was like. And honestly, it should have only grown in power, that feeling of freedom. The farther we've gotten from the slavery of sin, the more powerful we should uh, have that experience should be to us. Because of the finished work of Jesus Christ, our future is more certain than our present. That's the power of the gospel. How many of you like a show-off? You like when somebody's showing off? No, me either. There's a lot of easy questions this morning, if you didn't pick up on that. At a time, I was a youth pastor, and it used to drive me nuts when you were at a youth function. This generally happened at youth retreats because my youth workers were really good at this, uh, but some others apparently weren't very disciplined. Uh, but you'd be at an event, and the, and the youth workers would be like seeking to dominate the kids, like to show their superiority in physical capabilities, like playing dodgeball or uh, kickball or something. It's like, yeah, okay, dude, yeah, you're faster and you're stronger than everybody, really cool, or one of the worst ones, uh, which, you know, only happens occasionally, uh, is playing volleyball, and you got that ball hog. Yeah, there's certain people on our, on our volleyball team right now that we play over at the Baptist Church that uh, are a little bit like this. We're working on them, but uh, we, I don't know if you've ever played volleyball and you had that experience of that person that just had to get the ball every single time it came over the net, no matter where it went, and they'd bowl people over to get it. But nobody usually appreciates that. No one's going like, wow, that person is so skilled and amazing. I'm so glad that they're not letting anybody else play. Uh, that's usually not how it goes. However, in high school, I remember watching a video of the U.S. military showing off its power uh, on the South Korean side of the DMZ, the de demilitarized zone. That's what they were doing. They were showing off. And I thought, that's pretty cool. And that, that show of power was for a purpose. It was to create less problems in the future. Most of the time, however, we don't really appreciate it when an individual is showing off. Except when that individual is God. There's an interesting thing about the resurrection that maybe you've never really thought about. Why did Jesus have to come back to the earth? What is the theological importance? There is none. He could have just went straight to heaven. The only reason he came back to earth, in my opinion, 
is to show off. And not for his glory, but for us. He came back to show us, hey, I just want to make sure you understand, I have the power over death. Because every being in the spiritual realms, when Jesus was resurrected, was very clear, God has the power. But he still showed up here on this earth to show off for us. To show us a show of power that says, look at my power. I am back. Yes, I died. And then I was raised to life again. Why why show off? Why does God need to show off or want to show off? It's always for our sake. It's for us to see His power, that we get a view of a demonstration of His power that leads us to greater faith and greater trust. Romans chapter 8, verse 11. It says, The Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, and just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, He will give life to your mortal bodies by the same Spirit living within you. Just as God raised Jesus from the dead, he raised us from the dead. We were dead in sins, and we were raised to life. And we've been given this new life. The Bible tells us we're new creations, and we get to live now as these new creations. And so Jesus, he he dies, he's raised to to life again, and he begins to present himself to to the disciples to show his power, to show off just how powerful God is, that he can even raise people from the dead. It'd be a different story, not less powerful, but a different story if Jesus just disappeared from the tomb and then the Holy Spirit just illuminated to people's hearts and and minds this reality that Jesus was now seated at the right hand of God. It would just be a different story. Uh, Salvation would still be there, Everything theologically would still be sound. We, he, would, he already purchased salvation for us. He already showed his power over death by being resurrected. So it was for our sake that he shows that what the Holy Spirit is capable of. It says, just as the Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, you have that power now. And this is all part of that, that show of power that Jesus does. Is he's showing Look at this amazing power and now grasp for a moment that power now dwells inside of you. What are you doing with it? What are you doing with that power that can raise people from the dead? What have you done with that power? Part of the resurrection was also the ascension. Jesus made it a very public thing when he went into heaven. That's part, and we call that the ascension when he ascended to heaven. Uh, And Christ made it very clear where he was going and what his purpose was in going to heaven to sit at the right hand of God. Romans 8.34 tells us, Who then will condemn us? No one. For Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us, and he is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand, pleading for us. So he tells us not, not only did he rise from the dead, and he's going to sit at God's right hand. He's not just kicking back now and hanging out until he has to come back, you know, until his next assignment, which is to return and and pick us up. He pleads for us on our behalf to God the Father. That's his role, because he's our brother. 
and he pleads for us to our Father. Now, I didn't have a very healthy home life growing up. Can't say I ever uh, pleaded on behalf of one of my brothers for our parents. Um, quite the opposite, as a matter of fact. Uh, I was the cause of many beatings for my brothers because I would make stuff up uh, and create situations where they took a beating. Uh, definitely did that. So I can't say that I understand Jesus' role there, but I can certainly appreciate it. The fact that Jesus sits at God's right hand and he pleads on our behalf. When we pray, he, he pleads those prayers. He, we're told he's the mediator now. He's the one that goes between us and the Father. And so when we pray, he pleads on our behalf to God the Father. That's pretty awesome. I mean, there's so many amazing truths that, that we're just touching on today. The fact that he's, Jesus Christ is our brother. Now, it must have been pretty cool for the brothers of Jesus on this earth. I mean, they probably didn't care so much for it while Jesus was around, uh, especially from what we understand. But uh, what many historians looking into it believe is that all of Jesus' siblings became uh, pretty significant in the early church. It was after his death and resurrection that somehow at one point they came around to it. But it must have been pretty cool to walk into a church in the, you know, in the early church times and say, oh, yeah, did you know Jesus? As a matter of fact, he was my brother. I know him pretty well. I grew up with him. I beat him up once. Probably wouldn't make that public if you did. Uh, but that's pretty cool. And we get to claim that. We get to claim that we're not only are we brothers like some, some distant, like weird adoption thing, but we're co-heirs as well. We've been brought in with all the same rights and the same privileges that Christ has. That's amazing. And not only do we have this relationship we've been adopted in, but he even gave his own life so that we can go to heaven and we can be there for eternity someday. So I guess at the end of all of this, the question is, what impact should Christ's life, death, and his resurrection have on your daily life? What impact has it had? Or what impact should it have? As you focus on Christ's life, death, and resurrection, no one can really answer that question for you. I can tell you what effect it's had on me, but I can't tell you what effect it should have on you because that's useless. Once you wrestle with these truths, once you understand them, hopefully you do some research on them and, and you study them deeper than just glancing over the Gospels from time to time. But as you really begin to understand what God did for you, as you begin to, to meditate on it and focus on it and pray about it, man, it should rock your world. It should change everything about the way that you live your life. One thing you can do is you can be confident that God can relate to us in every aspect of our humanity. Jesus lived as a human, and he experienced everything that we're going to experience in some way, shape, or form. He might not have experienced what it's like to drive a car, but that's not really important. He's experienced sorrow. He's experienced hurt. He's experienced embarrassment. He's experienced all of these things that we'll experience, pain and suffering. All of these Jesus can relate to us in our humanity. We should seek to follow his example of how to live a spirit-filled life. One of the things that Jesus made it very clear with his disciples is all the things that he could have accomplished. Jesus literally could have sat down and healed people day in and day out constantly until he died on the cross. And yet Jesus often takes time to go off and be alone and pray and to be with the Father. How often do we do that? 
How often do we take time to be with the Father? And, and then we'll flip it around and we wonder why our Christian life is so difficult, why we have so much struggle, why we can't seem to follow God the way we want to, why we keep messing up. And it's like, well, how often do you do what Jesus did? Just follow his basic example. He goes off into the wilderness and he spends time with the Father. Sometimes all night he would spend. Man, how many, I'm not, don't raise your hand. How many of us have spent a whole night in prayer just because we felt like we wanted to connect with God or because we were so troubled by things that were happening in our communities or, or because our heart broke for a certain person and so we just wrestled with God like Jacob did all night. We just wrestled and wrestled and wrestled, prayed and sought the face of God. We should take comfort in knowing that he died for our sins and the work is completed. It is finished as he said it was in john 19 30 jesus when jesus had tasted it he said it is finished then he bowed his head and gave up his spirit here's the reality you don't need to do any more good works to earn salvation you're good now you get to serve god there's no have to there's no should there's no like well if you were really a good christian remember we talked about bounded set versus centered set Bounded set says there's a box around this idea of Christian, and if you want to be a Christian, you have to fit in this box. You have to wear the right clothes. You have to do the right things. You have to not do that, because if you do that, you're outside the box. That's the bounded set. And the centered set says, here's Jesus. Move toward him. At all times, in every moment, move toward him. That's the centered set, which I would say is far more healthy, because you can be a really good Christian and mess up tremendously. It happens. Because we're human and we're flawed. And it doesn't mean you get kicked out of the box and you're no longer a Christian. It means, okay, repent and move back toward Jesus and begin journeying toward him again. That's what's important. It is finished. You don't have to do anything else. Salvation has been secured for you. We just need to accept it and continue moving toward Jesus. We should take further comfort knowing that Christ didn't just die, but he rose again showing off his power over death. One of the things that has just made it and into my language and my prayer life is constantly asking God to show up and show off. Because I know he likes to do that. And I know it leads people toward him. When they, people see a demonstration of his power, many of the miraculous gifts like healings and things like that are generally used, we're told in the Bible, those are evangelistic gifts. It's to show off to the world that we serve the risen Savior. You saw a video this morning from West Africa of, of a way that God showed off in someone's life. That's awesome. And people came to know Jesus because of it, because God showed off. And then he went to sit at the Father's right hand and he to plead on our behalf until he returns to take humanity to heaven with him. And the Christian isn't a have-to mentality. And when we make it that way, we cheapen it. We cheapen the gospel and we cheapen what Jesus did when we make Christianity about have-tos. Given Christ's life, death, and resurrection, we get to serve him out of gratitude for the rest of our lives. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the truths about your life, your death, and your resurrection. I thank you that you lived a perfect life, that you lived an example of what it is to live a spirit-filled life. 
You showed us what it is to live amongst angry, ignorant people and still love them. You gave us an example of what it looks like to deal with the unlovables, and you love them. Lord, I thank you for your example and all that you teach us through your word. And Holy Spirit, I thank you that you continue to guide and direct us even beyond that. That even in our, in our everyday situations that we can learn to apply the gospel. I thank you that you died to purchase salvation for each and every one of us, for every human being, any who would, who would accept you as Savior. You died for all the sins of all mankind. And you did what none of us could do. And I thank you that you rose again to show off just how powerful you are. And then to remind us that the Holy Spirit that raised you from the dead now lives inside of us. And Lord, I pray we do something with that power. I pray we use that to further your kingdom and to tell people about you. Lord, I pray a blessing over us this week that we would focus, that we would spend time with you alone focusing on your life, your death, and your resurrection. And we would let the power of that settle into our hearts. Lord, I pray blessings over us as we go to our meeting now, that you would bless our time over there. And, and Lord, I pray for the rest of our day that you would make yourself real, powerful, and present to us, that we would see what you're about. And this week, we would uh, seek to proclaim and demonstrate the power of the gospel in every place that we go. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.